Thanks for joining us today for our conversation with Dahlia Pop. She is the Director of Programs and Global Advocacy for Hope and Homes for Children and has been working in the field of child protection for 17 years. Dahlia is a medical doctor by profession, and she started working with children in care in Romania, her home country, back in the 1990s. Dahlia is a friend of Faith to Action, and we always learn something from her whenever we get together. Today, we're going to learn important guidance from her regarding transitioning models of care for children to support family care, or as some refer to it, deinstitutionalization. Hi, Dahlia. It's so nice to have you join us. Thank you so much, Sarah. Let's dive in. Where have you seen the transitioning to family care happening, and what are some of the reasons for it? It's very interesting. It's for the first time in in the past five, six years uh, when I can really say confidently that we are experiencing a positive movement towards the transition of children out of the institutions. And I can see more and more success stories across the world from Eastern Europe, Southern Europe, Central Asia, Eastern Southern Africa, and Latin America, with an emerging number of initiatives in in Asia. The institutionalization is a very complex process by which I understand the transition from a system that relies on institutional care to a system that first and foremost helps children to stay with their families, prevents their separations from from their loved ones, and provides, when necessary, alternative family-based alternative care. You need to be able to support children to transition back into communities and families that are safe and well-protected. And you need to develop alternative care for those children who, for very good reason, could not return back to those families or can't be adopted. And another piece of evidence and motivation that is absolutely worthwhile for us to, to challenge ourselves, uh, to challenge the mentality that... Um, places us in, in w- where we accept that poverty is a justifiable reason to remove a child from a, from a family, that, you know, poor parenting from a single parent or a young parent is another justifiable reason to removing a child from a family. And um, it pushes us to, to challenge these, these assumptions and, and work harder to ensure that children experience their most important right of, of growing up in a, in a safe and, and healthy family. Hope in Homes for Children has been a major player in shifting the care of children from residential care to families in a number of countries. We'd really like to hear from you what you've learned from your experience and what needs to be in place in order for the transition to family care to safely happen. Hope in Homes for Children is 22 years old. And since almost the beginning, we worked to help transition children out of institutions back into communities. You might be surprised, but actually Hope and Homes for Children started with building institutions. We were convinced at that point in time that that was a good provision for children who were uh, experiencing separation, who were affected by wars and who were affected by other, other disasters. It did not take us very long to realize that though we provided excellent care, it wasn't really what the children wanted. They wanted to belong to a family. They wanted to belong to a community. Um, And that conversation, courageous conversation, helped us. 
uh, transition from building or rebuilding or refurbishing institutions on a completely different path, uh, which turned to be extremely successful for us and most importantly for the children we have been supporting. Since our uh, beginnings, we operated in about 35 countries and we supported the transition of 12,900 children out of 130 institutions. All these children and young people have been successfully transitioned into families, into communities, into alternative care services where necessary. We helped close 92 institutions through the development of over 360 services and we prevented about 45,000 children from being separated from families. And in all this process, we trained and developed over 30,000 childcare professionals and volunteers across the world. Children in institutional care and those at risk of separation are truly at the heart of everything we do. Their transition into families and alternative care is helping us to assist governments, partner organizations to design and resource child protection systems that are robust, are based on a family preservation concept, um, and the model we developed is, has been recognized not only by the governments we have been working with, but also by organizations like UNICEF and World Health Organization as, as best practice in, in the field. Now, as you can imagine, working across so many countries, we had a, a tremendous privilege uh, to be able to understand how this transition can be successfully implemented in so many diverse contexts, social, economic, political, histories and other circumstances that differ from country to country. But the ability that we had to be able to look at what worked helped us truly to understand what are the conditions that or the preconditions that create a success story in the transition. The first one is obvious. It's you need to have a very clear understanding of the institutionalization and almost to be humble about recognizing the fact that it is a complex process and it must always be situated within the broader context of reforming a system. It, this is not about closing institutions. This is not about ending something. It's about truly developing and beginning to operate in a completely different way. The second condition is an environment that is stable and it has the, the conditions in which you can cooperate with the government. You can work with community leaders who are accepted and respected by the communities in which they operate. You have the structures around you in communities, in, in the broader piece of the national context, which can help support your work and ensure that your initiatives are going to inform a legacy. And the legacy, it's about building policies that will, will help children, helping governments to understand that they need to invest their money alongside the funding coming from the civil society in supporting children, in preventing their separation, in bringing resources back into communities. So are you making a case that some of the advocacy needs to be done ahead of time? And for them to be successful in this transitioning, in whatever communities they're working in, whether it's small or large, is that correct? Absolutely. 
never assume that if we are committed or we are keen to implement the transition of children out of institutions, everybody will understand us and everybody will understand the agenda and everybody will be supportive of it. So it's absolutely necessary for us to bring all the key people that have uh, the respect of the community, are elected by the community, are uh, decision makers and policy makers, to bring them on board to understand what we want to create and why we want to transition children into their communities so they can understand their roles in the development and afterwards in ensuring the sustainability of the system. The civil society that can work together can put differences aside in order to to join forces, uh, to cooperate and to learn from each other. Uh, And last but not least, I think it's absolutely critical for the success of the transition is the ability to, to identify good alternative models within that context. And if they do not exist, to implement them. And I'll be a bit more specific. Um, anything, any programs that might support children to stay with their parents, any initiatives that help increase the income and, and support families to become sustainable, any small projects that demonstrate foster care or promote uh, uh, other forms of alternative care, those, even if are a very small scale, those will help create the preconditions that will support a positive transition from uh, institutions into family and community-based care. I think broadly, these are, these are the areas that are absolutely critical. And I would say that for a successful recipe, you need funding as well. There is a significant uh, amount of willingness. There are governments, um, NGOs, organizations, faith-based organizations that all want to transition from their previous models of of supporting children through uh, residential care to family and community-based care. Dahlia, when you talk about the cost, is it ultimately more cost-effective to serve a child in their family than in a residential care setting? What I'm hearing, though, in the transition is it's going to take a little more upfront funding and coordination, though, right? Let's take the example of, a, of an institution, a home for young children, um, is the only institution in a, in a certain community. It really provides life-saving ch- services for those children who might be abandoned or separated. And there are a lot of reasons why, why that is still happening in that particular community. For us to be able to transition from providing care in, in that form, we need resources to be able to invest in prevention programs, in parenting programs, in maybe daycare or nursery type services, as well as foster care. Now, Whilst we are funding the institution, our fundraising is supporting the running of the home for all the babies, we need additional resources to be able to gradually build the prevention and the alternative care services so we can see all the children transitioning safely. And at the end of the day, the cost necessary to support the children in families and in communities will reduce significantly. But during the transition, we will experience a spike that is truly represented by the investment in capacity, in infrastructure, and in transition costs for every single child to be a successful uh, situation. 
Now, why the costs are going to be reduced dramatically after we complete the transition? There are two very important reasons. Most of the children will be with families and a significant number of children in the future will be prevented to even being placed in care because we will be building very strong prevention mechanisms and services in communities that will be extremely cost-effective. That's really, really helpful. What steps can be taken to ensure a successful transition? You can successfully transition children out of institutional care in communities if you follow five critical steps. The first one is engagement, is really understanding who are the people that you want to convince or to educate or to support to understand why the transition of children is important. Looking broader at the community and where the children are coming from, but also looking at other potential partners, other organizations working in the area, government officials, journalists or leaders in those communities in which the institution is operational. The second critical step in in helping children to successfully transition out of institutions um, is understanding the reasons why children are there first and foremost, understanding what are the risk factors that leave those families and children vulnerable to separation. Where are the entry points? Are the children coming from the hospitals? Are the children referred by the community? Are the children referred by the police or by another committee in in that catchment area? Are they coming from far away? It's always very, very important to understand the circumstances, the real circumstances of the families. And I just want to give you an example, and I'm sure a lot of the listeners will know that. You go to an institution and and you look at the files and, and you learn about the children, and a lot of the records will tell you abandoned, abandoned, abandoned. That term is just a label of a symptom, it does not reveal the real causes of why that abandonment happened. This is a critical part of the information that needs to be collected to enable us to use all this information to, to design, basically, what could be the services that will replace that institution and will help the transition uh, and will make it successful. The third step is designing those services. When we know why the children are placed in, where they are coming from, what were the circumstances of the families, we are in a completely different place. We really understand now what are the risk factors that those families experience, where those families are in the communities, therefore which communities we need to target first, where do we need to go first. And what kind of interventions we can put in place in order to prevent for other children to be, to be placed in, in the institution. And in the same time, we will know, based on the assessment, how many children can realistically return with support to their families. How many children could, could be placed back with their kinship families. How many children are adoptable. 
how many children can and should be cared for in foster care, how many children have needs that require more specialist attention, maybe specialist foster care or other services. Now, the design of the services is quite important because it takes the services away from being placed in one geographical location and it spreads them back into the communities where the children are coming from in order to, to, to support those communities to become more resilient, more stronger and, and more capable in protecting their children and preventing their, their separation. The next step, it's obvious, and it's all about developing these mechanisms, developing gatekeeping, raising the awareness of, of the general population about these children, preparing the communities for them to welcome the children and ensure that their transition will be, will be successful, and supporting children's transition. This is one of the most important and critical ingredients for success. Um, children in institutions have experienced a life that is very different from the life that children experience at community level. And they require quite a lot of support to catch up to understand how communities operate, to learn some of those skills and, and to be able to return in a positive fashion. Most importantly, all children should be involved in the decision-making process. They should be part of it. We can't just take children away. All this transition needs to happen in a way that will support the realization of the best interest of each and every child. And I, I can say that there must be special attention paid for, uh, to children with special needs, and there must be special attention paid for, for young people, especially those who have spent almost their entire childhoods in institutions. They need a lot of support and they need to be gradually helped to learn life in, in, in communities. And the process doesn't stop when the last child moved out of the institutional environment. The work just begins there, but the transformation is extraordinary. And it's not a sprint. It is a marathon. So you need to have commitment. You need to understand from the beginning that it's going to be a difficult process. It's going to have up and downs, and it's going to be hitting certain points where, where the challenges are, are going to grow. But when you reach and when, when you cross the line, the transformation that you will see will be beyond any expectations. Last but not least, it's very important not to finish before you have a good monitoring system in place. And it does not need to be overtly complicated. Uh, it can be as simple as checking in with children every three months or six months uh, meeting their families, uh, speaking with their teachers when returned back to school and, and so on and so forth, to understand how they are doing to ensure that they are thriving and, and they are developing and to learn from any situations that might indicate not such a good development uh, and to ensure that those are, are corrected as, as you go along. What have you learned from the families about what helped make for a successful reunification with their children? One particular um, review of, of the reintegration program in Rwanda um, is actually very, very telling. So in, in Rwanda, uh, to, to begin with, we were working across uh, 
four different communities. In total, 865 children and families supported uh, to, to reunite. There were families who were led by grandmothers or members of the extended families, aunties, uncles, who took the responsibility to support children. Now, our approach in supporting the reintegration is based on a couple of very simple principles. One was to ensure that there is willingness. Second, to ensure that the move is in the best interest of the child. And third, that this is a partnership with the family and it, it will help the family to become stronger, not only because that child would return, but because all the children of the family and the family should thrive and provide the right environment for all their children to, to develop. We always look at living conditions and, and we ask families what are the basic needs around their living conditions. And, and you won't be surprised, but a lot of, a lot of the families are simply asking for, for very simple things like locks on the doors or you know, bars over the windows, security-connected uh, issues, and of course, very basic other things, uh, furniture, utensils, access to water, etc., so we, we also look at education, at health needs, at building or helping the families to rebuild their social um, and family relationships. And last but not least, we look at how uh, we can support them to, in, to improve their income so they can afford children's education, they can meet the basic needs for all the members of the family. And we, we did this work consistently across the years, supporting many, many families, as I, as I said. Um, and, of course, as any organization should do, we decided to review and to go back and ask the families what was the most important part that they appreciated in our, in our support. And we were all expecting uh, the results to come and to be very strong around income generation um, we were wrong. The families highlighted first and foremost the life-saving support that they were given for, for meeting their basic needs. All those families that we work with were in a crisis situation when we first reached out or they reached out to us. But the second most valued area of support was recognized around helping them to build or rebuild their social relationships within the family, with the community, their ability to be, to be inviting people in to have a tea, their ability to go back to church and feel that they are part of a community, their ability to have their neighbors' children coming over to play with their children and not to be ashamed that they don't have a door to their house. Those things made the biggest difference. It was across the board, hundreds of families recorded independently that that was one of the most important areas and they appreciated tremendously the support we gave them. So I, I think this story, which is not one family story, but it's hundreds of family stories, is something quite important for us to remember. We have a tendency to focus on, on financials. We have a tendency to focus on, oh, we can't do this because there is no funding or we don't know how to increase this or that. We should not forget how important it is for us to help families to reconnect with their communities 
And that, that is not a financial intervention. That is really a, a community strengthening intervention that will, will pay dividends and will help our, our support become sustainable in time because it, we won't be needed. The families will be well connected, will be well supported, and they will feel again that they are part of, of their communities. Wow, I just learned something really interesting, Delia. I, I hadn't had that presented to me that way before, but it makes total sense. So thanks for sharing that. Wow, I just learned something really, really interesting, Delia. I hadn't had that presented to me that way before, but it makes total sense. So thanks for sharing that. How have faith-based groups been helpful to your work? Many years ago in Rwanda and more recently in other countries in East and Southern Africa, we came across uh, more and more faith-based organizations. And to tell you the truth, most of um, the people I met were inspiring. And that pure commitment to, to supporting children and families uh, was extraordinary to witness. Now, one particular area in which uh, we successfully enhanced our programs uh, was around foster care for children with disabilities. We have actually made appeals and, and worked really hard with uh, local faith-based groups and, and missions and churches to support us in the recruitment for foster parents, and we've been extremely successful. In Rwanda, we piloted foster care for children with severe disabilities. We have been supporting young people and adults with disabilities and mental health uh, issues to live in communities, supported by communities. The transformation is extraordinary. Dalia, thank you for being with us. We really appreciate you. And as I said earlier, we always learn something new whenever we're together with you. For those tuning in, you can learn more about Hope and Homes for Children at www.hopeandhomes.org. The Faith to Action Initiative also has a transitioning care guidance manual to help your ministries through this transition. It can be downloaded on our website at www.faithtoaction.org. Thanks for joining us today. 